to another episode of The Hammer, an umpire podcast. As always, I am your host, Kevin Weber, coming to you via recording from Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's been about a month since my last podcast, and I'm going to be going on a trip out east very soon, so I wanted to uh, get this one recorded and put out before... I started doing some college visits with my daughter out on the East Coast. She's a pretty smart kid and is going to have some excellent opportunities to uh, go to some elite type of colleges. We'll see how things work out in the next few months, I guess. As you might have noticed, the episode title is uh, has to do with The Ump Show, something I've been talking about recently with newer umpires of mine. How we don't want to have the ump show. We get a lot of negative um, publicity, I guess you might say, on social media and uh, television about umpires bringing attention to themselves. I don't think this is very often the case. Usually they're reacting to something that has happened in the game, but that's not the way the casual fan or commentator or social media troll type person looks at things. I recently had an ejection in a game in a summer league tournament game. Um, an assistant coach, I warned him, we had a, a play on the bases. I warned him to stop talking. First I asked him, are you the head coach? No, then you need to stop talking to me and return to your box. Then we, you know, the umpire, the other umpire and I had a conversation with the head coach and of course he leaves his box again and comes down and starts saying more things. And I told him, again, I've had enough from you. You need to stop. And then, of course, he gives me a wisecrack kind of remark. And then I ejected him because we shouldn't have too much patience with assistant coaches. I gave him two chances, and, and the guy decided to get himself ejected. But right when that happened, I get the head coach saying, this, is, this isn't about you. He says that to me, which he's trying to say, like, I'm making the ump show go on here, which certainly... The, the show seemed to be this assistant coach who didn't know his place on this baseball field and seemed to think that he could just yell things and do whatever he thought he could do it like he was a head coach or something like that. Those are things we want to avoid. Sometimes, though, um, you know, like I feel like in that situation, it wasn't necessarily my fault. I mean, I was just trying to handle and manage the game the best that I could. But we do a few things here and there especially newer umpires, that uh, draws undue attention to ourselves that can create uh, an ump show, quote-unquote, situation. And I go over a few of those in this episode, particularly when I'm talking about my observations for um, some tournament games that I went and observed to newer umpires, the uh, MHSAA uh, finals. I have a segment on that. In some of those situations, um, if you don't know your rules, if you don't know your mechanics, um, and if you have you know bad um, ways of handling situations, uh, then you can certainly create your own little ump show out there uh, when it is your fault, and we want to avoid that stuff. Certainly our attitude out there is uh, a big thing that kind of gets the, the ump show mentality going with people when you're looking for... An argument or a kind of a fight kind of thing uh, we don't want that we don't ever want to be looking for it but we certainly want to take care of it 
if it does come our way. And that's really the way I look at it and the way I've been taught. So um, that's what I'm getting at with this whole ump show thing, something that we want to avoid because we know everything's being recorded nowadays. All kinds of things show up on social media platforms. Obviously, professional games do and high-level collegiate games, but even low-level collegiate games are recorded and uh, streamed. And then, man, we can go out there and there's a 12U tournament anywhere in America, and they have uh, recording technology on the box ops. You know, I see that here. We have a big complex that's got like eight different fields on it, and each one has a, a, a camera there. So we know that we're susceptible to those things, and we got to make sure that we're handling things the right way because it very easily can come back and get you. All right. In this uh, particular episode, I've got a, a listener question once again from Scott Ordway, who's a listener that is always uh, sending me uh, his thoughts and, and questions about different things, which I always appreciate. Uh, I talk about um, a mechanic that is, uh, I think, tricky for two umpire systems for a lot of guys, particularly newer guys, uh, pickoff plays at first base. We've got some new federation or high school rule changes, um, some that I think are excellent changes, some, I don't know, we'll have to see how it works out. And like I said, I've also got some observations I've made recently on uh, tournament umpires um, at the high school level and also just summer league tournaments. So hopefully uh, I've got a little something for everybody or at least get you thinking about a few things. So sit back and relax for another episode of the Hammer and Umpire Podcast. Once again, I got a email message from uh, longtime listener Scott Ordway, and thank you, Scott, for reaching out. Uh, he had three different questions for me that I will try to um, answer the best that I can. The first one was, are there any kinds of plays where you are supposed to make calls from foul territory when in A? And um, I'm assuming that you're talking more two-man mechanics. Um, what I've been taught is that you should not be making any calls from foul territory um, no matter what mechanics you're, you're working, but particularly two-man mechanics. Um, you might have to really be snug to that foul line if you get a ball to um, the second baseman or possibly the first baseman too, but usually it's the second baseman kind of moving toward the line and kind of squeezes you over. Um, so you got to, you know, hopefully get uh, backed up the best you can and um, be in the best spot. The main reason you don't want to really be in foul territory is that if there is an overthrow or some play in which the batter runner is going to go to second base, then you need to be able to cut in and, and try to get ahead of that play the best you can for any potential play at second base. Now, if you're working three or four man, then you certainly um, have an opportunity um, you know, to, to move a little more toward foul territory if it's absolutely necessary. I guess the biggest thing there is that you know in three-man and four-man that you have another umpire ahead of you, um, most of the time anyway, that can pick up that play at uh, second base. 
so you don't really have to worry about that so much. But, um, and I think I mentioned it previously on this podcast, we know the 1985 World Series, the famous play there that was missed at first base with the, uh, the Royals and the Cardinals. And uh, one of the reasons it was missed is because it was taken in foul territory. That was a little bit more standard and acceptable back at that time. Uh, nowadays, um, not so much. Um, and you should try to avoid that if you can. And I've found over the years that you really can avoid that if, if, you, um, if you try. And you should be able to take most of your plays uh, within fair territory. Another question that Scott had was, when in B, it can be sort of tricky to tell if a left-handed pitcher is committing a balk with his right leg. Do you have any tips for being able to better determine if a left-handed pitcher is committing a balk? Well, um, certainly if it's obvious that um, he is stepping more toward the plate rather than the 45-foot line, uh, you could get that call. Um, if you are in B position, but traditionally and usually in most pregames, it's the plate umpire's call for a left-handed pitcher on the step balk where he is not uh, stepping toward the 45-foot line, instead stepping more toward the plate because he does have a, a better angle for, for that uh, without question. And if you do call it in B, uh, you might get a little guff. I mean, certainly if you see it and you think it's a balk and he clearly stepped well toward the plate when he threw over the first, you can do that. But you are kind of uh, standing behind him, and it is a tricky angle. So you're going to really have to be able to sell that, and um, it's almost going to be like you called it because your partner missed it. Okay, um, So that always doesn't sit well with people as well okay so that is um my comment said so that's something that should be pre-gamed you know um who's got the the lefty step balk um you guys should talk about that okay and then your final question was what would you say is the highest level division one game series that you have worked how does that kind of game series compare to others uh well the highest level d1 series I've worked is uh, a Mac series. I worked a um, couple of those. And, um, you know, certainly the, the players are more skilled. Um, you know, they look more like uh, bigger athletes and stuff. They literally are bigger. And, you know, they throw a little harder and they can hit a little farther. And usually they can make more plays and, and those kind of things. They're still student athletes the same age as as you know, junior college players or division two or three players and such. So they usually can make a few more plays and maybe hit a few more home runs and throw a little harder and those kind of things. Um, I, I guess the biggest difference there is that uh, you're usually with at least you know a three-man crew when you're working those. So that is always a bit challenging because you know you don't work that quite as often um, as you do two-man, and so you're a little bit more um, I don't know apprehensive or something about uh, messing something up there if you are not as familiar with it from whatever position you're working. I always thought that I would be um, particularly nervous or something uh, the first opportunities I got to work some uh, Division One baseball, but um, I wasn't really that nervous about it uh, for some reason. I guess that's good because my signers, um, they knew when I was ready for it, I guess, and uh, put me in those positions. So I felt like 
I, I belonged and that I could handle it, and uh, things went pretty well. Um, you know, the fields are nicer. You know, you might get to stay in a hotel if you're out of town. Obviously, you get paid better. Uh, the baseball's a little bit better, though those games can be brutal and go a long time, too. I've had a couple of those that have been some long, uh, tough games uh, to, to officiate. Uh, but, uh, you know, you got more uh, partners. You know, if you got at least one other guy, maybe two, two other guys or, you know, or two or three guys that are with you. So, um, you know, that's a, a camaraderie thing, but also hopefully you get along with those guys as well. Um, so that's a little bit different thing rather than just one other guy. Um, usually have nicer facilities to change in and, and, um, keep your stuff and everything. Um, so, you know, that is really the thing though. I mean, you know, in college baseball, whether you work in JUCO, NAI, D3, D2, D1, um, there's good baseball players at all those levels. Um, and there's, um, also bad baseball at all those levels, um, as well. So um, I don't really see that as such a huge difference um, sometimes. Um, the coaches, obviously, are more serious the more the higher you go up. But then again, the D3 league that I work and the D2 league that I work, those coaches are ultra serious as well too because, you know, those guys' jobs and they're trying to uh, be successful at their schools and, and, can, and keep their jobs, right? So um, that's really the thing. Um, it's not quite as stark a difference between like working, let's say, freshman or JV baseball and varsity baseball. That's a, a, a very big step, I think, for most people uh, in most leagues, you know, or most baseball around the country. Uh, but, um, you know, the college level, um, yeah, okay, a D3 or D2 school is going to get crushed by even a, a, a very subpar D1 school most of the time. But, uh, in general, the, the baseball itself kind of moves along the same way. The games are kind of similar. You deal with similar issues, you know, players popping off at each other, guy, you know, guys trying to get hit by pitches that you might have to deal with, um, you know, the same kind of infractions that they might have. You can have an anthem standoff at a D1 game or a Juco game uh, or somebody using tobacco there or something that you might have to deal with. Um, you know, all the kind of silly stuff that they do, you know, the antics and everything. It's D1 all the way down to the JUCO stuff. So I, it's just college baseball. You're just dealing with all those game management things. I don't think that stuff is necessarily that different because you're still dealing with 18 to 22-year-olds roughly at all those levels. And uh, that's the same kind of person that you're dealing with everywhere. Yeah, they, they could be a slightly better baseball player as you move up, but otherwise it's all about the same. So I don't know if that really answers your question, Scott, but uh, that's kind of my take on it. Um, so hopefully that is good enough. I, as always, appreciate you sending in the emails that you do and uh, you pose some interesting questions for me that uh, I appreciate answering on the show. So in June in Indianapolis, the... NFHS uh, committee met and made some rule changes for high school baseball for the 2023 season. High school baseball players and coaches will be permitted to wear jewelry in 2023 after 
the NFHS Baseball Rules Committee voted to remove its prohibition from the rules. Previously, only medical and religious medals were permitted by rule. I always thought this was a very silly rule. Um, think about all the baseball games that you've watched on TV, in person, and everything. Have you ever seen jewelry play a role in a game? Maybe it has. I never have. And I've watched thousands and thousands of games, either as an official or as a spectator, in person or on television, and it doesn't make any difference. And I think it's a silly rule. So it's definitely one that um, I think is good to get rid of. I was uh, also tired of having the the umpires that I work with that were the, I will, I will call them the, the jewelry police that seemed to sometimes be more concerned about telling players and coaches that they needed to remove jewelry and this is their first warning and if I see another player, I'm going to eject them. We're ejecting people because they're wearing a necklace, you know, which always seemed really silly to me. I, I found myself not even looking for it as much as I probably should have because I was always and still am more concerned about getting balls and strikes and safe and outs correct than um, seeing if a guy's got an earring or um, some gold dangling from his neck, okay? I had a, uh, uh, you know, Michigan uh, high school tournament game this year in which we have the national anthem, and right after the national anthem, I get a head coach telling me that he saw a player on the other team that's got a necklace. Like, I, I don't you know, it's like, really? That's what we're worried about? So, what, he wants to get a warning so that somebody can get thrown out of the game or something, which I think is pretty Bush League, okay? So I'm glad that they changed this. It needed to be changed a long time ago. There are some other things that need to be changed in high school baseball as far as I'm concerned as well. Um, one, I think that they need to adopt the collegiate rule for hit by pitch in which if in the umpire's judgment somebody intentionally gets hit by a pitch, it doesn't matter where the pitch is, it's an automatic strike. That cleaned things up immensely in collegiate baseball from players that were doing that all the time, especially now that we're in the age of guys going up there with their their armor on, you know, especially on their elbows, right? And the other thing we need to do is uh, reduce the amount of conferences that players can have on the mound. The catcher going out, the shortstop going over, they do this in collegiate baseball too. Um, in collegiate baseball, for example, you get six defensive conferences per game three of them can be with a coach of any type pitching coach head coach um, and the other ones can be with uh, the players if the players take four of them the catcher or the shortstop or the first baseman go over there four times now the coach has two now they get additional ones if there's extra innings and such things but they need to have something like that because when I switch back and forth from college baseball to high school baseball it just wastes so much time with these players going out there. They don't know signals, this and that, whatever it is. It, it'll take a year or so for them to get used to it, but they, they, they go out there way too often. Sometimes you have a catcher that will go out there four times in a game. It's ridiculous. Uh, so they need to change those things too, and that will speed up the pace of play in a baseball game. Anyway, so the rule change for the jewelry uh, was uh, in Rule 1512. 
Um, it was approved by the committee, and the rules uh, were subsequently approved by the Board of Directors. While most jewelry will be permitted, the Baseball Rules Committee noted that the current rules still state that any jewelry worn that poses harm or injury to a player or an opponent would be removed. So there's still some wiggle room there if something is um, way out of whack and um, distracting or something like that, okay? And they said, the game of baseball has evolved and players have demonstrated that wearing a bracelet or a necklace does not impede their ability to play or increase any risk to themselves or their opponents. So I definitely agree with that. The committee also added a definition uh, for a lodged ball, which is when a ball remains on the playing field but becomes wedged, stuck, lost, or unreachable, causing it to stop abruptly um, or not to fall or roll immediately. In this situation, the ball is declared a dead ball. So this definition was necessary to differentiate when a ball becomes lodged in a fielder's glove in which the ball remains in play. And, you know, like, for example, it's stuck in the second baseman's glove or the pitcher's glove. He can toss it over to the first baseman and the player can be out, right? So different there. Also, Rule 6 was adjusted to only use the pivot foot to determine whether a pitcher is delivering a pitch from the windup or set position. If you recall, previously, the position of both feet on the pitcher's plate determined either the windup or set positions, prohibiting a hybrid position where the pivot foot was in the windup position and the non-pivot foot was in the set position. So the rules committee received tremendous input from coaches and umpires that allowing the hybrid would assist players to succeed in pitching. Anytime we can write a rule to improve playability or increase participation, then it is prudent that we do so for the sake of participants. So this is it's kind of like they're allowing the hybrid and they're probably going to have to have something similar to the collegiate rule in which they um, probably will need to declare what position they are um, in if they're in set or wind up when it is in doubt before the pitch and, and as such. So we'll see if that happens as well. Rule 154 also added language clarifying that eye shields attached to a catcher's mask after manufacture are prohibited. Eye shields that are attached at the time of manufacture must be clear because you can certainly get certain glare and different things from those. In addition, the officials' signals, umpire signals, right, for baseball were updated to include eight pre-pitch situations and eight signals during play and results. So we'll see how those are um, as they come out and certainly will be coming out in the new rule books and case books. So some interesting stuff there. Um, definitely the jewelry thing is needed. We'll see how this stuff goes with this hybrid position, uh, allowing that. But uh, that's the way the rules committee is going. So we're going to have to uphold those rules to the best of our ability. I believe most of the listeners of this podcast work a majority of their ball games in the two umpire system. 
Um, I know I've had some opportunities, but I still work a majority of my games in the two umpire system. And of course, we know that there are limitations of the two umpire system. Uh, one of the biggest ones is the pickoff play at first base. We know if we're working three man or four man, then we will have an umpire right where he would like to be for a pickoff play at first, six, eight, ten feet, hands on knees, with a great view of the inside part of the bag where that runner might be trying to slide back in and get his hand in there, right? However, uh, we know that we're in B position when we're in the two umpire system and we're 45, 50 feet away or something. Um, and really it comes down to an angle over distance uh, kind of situation. I, I found this to be um, a tricky thing uh, to try to find the, the right spot to try to get the right angle and be able to make a call on those bang bang plays. Those are tough. Um, you know, I, I've had a few this year that I, I've had some, you know, doubts on if I got them right. I had one a couple of weeks ago in a summer collegiate game, and uh, it was a banger of a play. I saved the runner. Um, he might have been out. I mean, I wish I would have had replay or something. And, of course, it didn't help much that the field I was on, the sun was, like, setting right behind first base. Um and I didn't, I, I just didn't have the greatest view. I mean, I, I feel like on those plays, it's got to be fairly obvious that the guy is out for me to bang him out. Can't just kind of guess or flip a coin on it. But um, it was pretty dang close. I don't know. It, you know, it could have gone either way. So if you are lucky enough to live in an area where there are some minor league baseball, particularly lower level minor league baseball, I'm sure you've gone to some of the games and um, I'm sure you're probably watching the umpires more than you're watching the game sometimes. If you um, haven't gone to one lately or the next time you do, pay particular attention to that base umpire and, and how they take plays on those pickoffs. Um, they're certainly taught a certain way in pro school on how they're supposed to do that. And what they're working for is to try to get the best angle they can. So usually what they do is, you know, they take one or two quick hard steps toward the 45-foot the line. And, uh, you know, rather than toward first base, because that's really giving you a worse angle and you're kind of looking up rear ends of people and, and we don't really want to do that. So they take one or two quick hard steps, you know, usually pivoting and uh, create the best angle that they can to see all the elements of the play and trying to be set before you know, the ball arrives here. I think that is one of the trickier things is uh, trying to get yourself set. Um, because obviously, you know, we have been taught that you don't want to be moving uh, when you're trying to make a call. Um, that's tough. I mean, there are a few situations where it's, an, it's acceptable to be moving a little bit, like when we're working a, a wedge-type play at the plate or another base as well, but usually at the plate uh, where you can be moving a little bit and you try to get a set as possible. Um, I think that that kind of goes with this play as well. Um, obviously, uh, once the uh, um, all the elements of the play have concluded, uh, we want to certainly remain set if we're making a call. Um, most spectators and, and uh, team personnel 
um, we'll look at you after the call and see if you're set. If you're still moving, obviously that's not a good look at all, no matter what the call may be. So that's something to work on as we continue through the rest of the summer and then to some fall baseball as well, is um, where you line up. I try to uh, kind of line up even with that back corner of the base so that, um, or right, you know, I try to give myself a position where I, if I take that step, um, I can get that angle that I would like to have. I don't want to be um, too far, you know, toward the plate so that I don't get that angle. I don't want to be too far back toward the, uh, the dirt, the infield dirt, so that it's harder to get the angle as well. Um, I find it difficult to um, take that step and pivot and get um, turned in enough time when it's a really quick throw. Um, and some of the levels that I've been privileged to work, I mean, the, these guys have some great pickoff plays, and they throw it hard, and they get it there quickly, and they can snap a tag down over there at first base with some skilled first baseman as well. So those can be tricky. I mean, when you're working, you know, maybe if you're working a 12 or 13-year game, they're not uh, whipping it over there uh, quite as quickly as they are when they're 18, 20, 22 years old or something like that. So something to think about, um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it's a play that happens a lot. So our skill level and our um, philosophy and how we can uh, see that play the best that we can. All of us have different um, strengths and weaknesses as umpires. Some people are really good at taking that jab and turning and getting set uh, better than others. Maybe they're a little more athletic or something. I think my athleticism is pretty average. Um, you know, I, I don't think I'm not athletic, but I'm not like, you know, some world-class sprinter out there or something or whatever. Um, you see some of the guys that are working minor league baseball, and, and there's some good athletes out there. So um, they have that, and it's something to work on. I mean, you can work on that, you know, in your home or in your backyard. And certainly once you get out to the baseball field, uh, that's something that you can continue to think about. And where do I got to be so I can see that? You can almost like when you're walking out there, if, you're, if there's a pitching change or something, um, you know, sometimes if you're, you know, waiting for the kid to warm up or something, you can kind of look at those angles and see, hey, this would be the probably the best spot I should be. How can I make sure I get to that spot when I get a pickoff throw? Those are things that um, you can do. And you can just, or you can just walk out to a baseball field sometime and just kind of stand there and say, okay, where would I like to be uh, when that throw arrives? How can I get there? You can work on those things. I've done that a few times. I don't know if any of you guys have done that, but... Uh, particularly when um, I started to work more three and four man, I would uh, go out to a field and um, you know try to see where I was positioning wise and uh, how I was when um, you know where I would be when I was taking a particular play or something. You know, kind of like ghost plays, <laughs> right? In your mind, there's nobody else out there. They probably think I'm crazy, but I think that's important. It's sometimes hard to uh, recognize that stuff if you're not on a baseball field and have the proper dimensions and and distances out there all right so um something i wanted to talk about hopefully that's uh, helpful for some of you out there something to think about and know that you're not alone if you're an umpire that feels like you struggle a little bit with that and uh, th those are uh, tricky plays and one of the trickiest plays to get right for a base umpire <laughs>
high school baseball, and I'm assistant assigner for that. And uh, I assign a lot of games during the spring and throughout the summer for travel league teams. They're weekly games and, and several tournaments. And this past weekend, I had a very large tournament that I assigned. So I went out to one of the sites that had eight fields running uh, to check out some of the umpires that I had never seen work before. Uh, they're newer guys. And uh, overall, I was... Um, pleased with how things were going. They seemed to uh, be uh, decent on their balls and strikes and safe and outs and such things. Um, but there were a few things that I noticed, and I think that they might be beneficial to some of our newer umpires out there. You know, there's always those things that you're like, oh, I wish somebody would have told me this stuff. Because um, there's a lot of things that, you know, you might talk to somebody after a game or maybe a veteran kind of guy, and, and they don't really say anything, and particularly if you don't ask, they don't say anything. Or maybe they just do these things themselves, because you'll see guys that work, ten, they've been working 10 years doing different games during the summer and whatever, and they kind of do some of the same stuff that they shouldn't be doing. One of the first things I noticed was how people were setting up to uh, call balls and strikes. Um, of course, you want to work in the slot and those kind of things, and, and that can always be an issue. But one of the other things is how you lock in. You know, you can lock in by getting your hands behind your knees. You can lock in in the more professional style where they have, like, the right hand across your, like, belly button, and your left hand is kind of locked in on your um, other leg. Uh, but what I see frequently with... Uh, newer umpires is they'll put their hands in behind their back, you know, clasp them behind their back, which certainly protects them, but that does not allow you to um, lock in. And you can definitely be drifting up or down, especially as you get more tired throughout a baseball game. All right. Um, another thing I see, even with some guys that are a little more veterans, is these guys that wear all this padding like almost like arm guards on their left and right arms in case they get a foul ball or something off of their arm. Now, I know that it hurts like heck and can leave some massive bruising and such things. And I've heard that guys have broken some wrists or something like that by getting a foul ball. I've gotten my fair share off of there. I've never broken anything. I've gotten some big welts, that's for sure. The big thing is, to me, it's like, um, one, it's not a good look. I mean, I guess if everybody did it, that'd be fine, but they don't. You look not so good when you kind of gear up back there. I, I don't know. And it looks silly when you're making calls when you've got, you know, big old things on your arms. But anyway, more importantly, uh, hands behind your back is kind of an amateurish kind of look or a, a newbie or a green guy kind of look. You got to see how the more experienced and, and probably in your opinion better umpires set up to call balls and strikes and kind of work that into your techniques okay another thing see guys with their hat on backwards when they're working the plate like they're a catcher or something can't do that man that just looks like you don't know what you're doing even if you do okay you got to find a hat that's got the right um you know, bill length and everything that you can put your mask on and off uh, without it falling off your head. Using your left hand, you got to work on that stuff. 
Um, some guys now are going to the the hard hat, you know, that will go with the detachable mask, which is fine. And, you know, you see some professional guys doing that, some major league guys even doing that. And so that's perfectly fine. But uh, one time there was a, um, I noticed one umpire, there was a timeout. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody was talking to the pitcher or whatever. And he had the helmet on and he had the mask on top of it just kind of resting on top of it can't do that man i mean certainly you're not going to do that when you have um you know like a, a regular hat or a regular cap on as well that's a bad look don't do that see guys uh, storing their water during a tournament in one of the dugouts man we gotta stay out of the dugouts you can put it by the side of a fence or something like that if you're bringing water. If it's hot, I mean, it's certainly good to be hydrated and all that. But you can't be going into either one of the dugouts. Only bad things are going to happen at that point. What what happens if there was some controversial thing happening and now you're walking into that particular dugout that it went against that team and you're getting some water? I mean, you're just going to get sniped from somebody saying something potentially, right? So think about those things, all right? Uh, handling rowdy fans and, you know, sometimes, you know, teams, but just the rowdy fans, you, you some of these, um, parents, uh, I go out there and, and I know that travel ball makes a lot of money for certain people. They pay a lot of money to get in these tournaments and parents spend a lot of money on lessons for kids and hotels and food and baseball bats and all the other equipment that they have. And then they go out there and they watch, you know, three, four, five, six games a weekend and whatever other games they're playing, and they don't know the rules. <laughs> it just amazes me, all right? How can you sit there and watch, you know, dozens and dozens of games a year with your kid and invest all this money and not really have a clue? But the problem is I guess they think that they know. Like, for example, um, there was a pickoff play pitcher just you know regular pickoff play to first base he was in contact with the pitcher's plate and threw it past him and it went you know under the fence and uh, there were some runners on base and, and the umpires got it right you know one base from the pitcher's plate like we should know and so i'm standing next to some parents there and they don't know who i am from anybody else and they're like yeah it's always one base if it goes under a fence <laughs> i'm thinking no you know we know if it's a first play by an infielder or first play by an outfielder and all the other things, you know, whether it's time of pitch or, you know, from when the throw was made and all the other things that go into that for awarding bases. Um, and they don't have any idea at all. We, we know that we're dealing with a lot of that. A lot of times we'll have parents yelling stuff. I had a young umpire on a field, had a couple close plays on the bases, one at second base, one at third base, base that I think he got right. But they were bangers, okay, sliding plays. And um, this, you know, one dad on the one side, they both the plays went against his team, and he's the guy sitting there doing the game changer thing or something. And he's yelling out there, you know you got that wrong. And there was a play at third base, and he's, like, yelling at the plate umpire. It wasn't even his call. And he's like, that's your call anyway. You go tell him. And it's like they have no idea about mechanics or whose call it is or Anything else, just amazing. Obviously, when there's stuff happening in the stands, unless somebody's being, you know, so belligerent, they're swearing or they're 
being so derogatory or yelling racist things or something like that, then we'll get a site administrator that, you know, we'll stop the game until a site administrator removes that person. We, we don't want to eject fans, okay? We're not really in the position to eject fans. That's a site administrator kind of thing. No matter what game you're working, right, you can not play until things are taken care of. If um, there isn't any site administrator, then you talk to the head coach of that particular team and say, hey, we're not going to continue until that person is taken care of. So either you take care of them or we got to get somebody else over here to take care of them. You don't go over there and engage with the person. And you only, remember, have control over the um, situation on the field, the players and coaches that are there. That's your jurisdiction, right? So those are some eye-opening things I guess I saw out there. Um, taking plays, right? Another thing. Taking plays uh, at the plate. You know, point of the plate and you try to work the wedge. If you don't know the wedge, there's all kinds of YouTube videos out there that are some are really good that will show you the basics on working the wedge, which is a primary thing we do at plays at home plate, but certainly can be used at any of the bases and how you take it, particularly if you're working four man and you're working second base, you're kind of working that base in a similar fashion than that you would work um, plays at the plate. Okay. Um, so those are some things I see two guys set up like, you know, they just kind of grab a spot, um, third baseline extended or first baseline extended and stay there and they can get themselves blocked out or whatever on those kind of things. Remember, for plays at the plate nowadays is the old school way to just grab a spot and stick there. That is really not the way we should be doing things anymore. Um, it's okay to be moving a little bit as you're trying to get set with a play at the plate around that catcher's um, glove side hip, okay? Um, and you're trying to move with him and get the open up the best angle that you can to see the play. Especially nowadays that pretty much at all levels, uh, guys can't really block the plate. And uh, we have 90-something percent swipe tag kind of plays at the plate nowadays. So it used to be guys trying to run people over and everything. And you might get that every once in a while. And it might even be a legal play where the guy is legally making some contact below the waist and not you know extending the arms and such things. Uh, or that the throw takes the catcher into somebody. But more often than not, we have a swipe tag kind of play. So um, working the wedge is the best way to see those things. All right. Anyway, those were a few things that I noticed when I went out and watched some of my newer umpires. And uh, maybe those might be beneficial to some of you out there as well. As I mentioned on my previous podcast, I was planning to go to uh, Michigan State University here in East Lansing, Michigan, to watch the Michigan High School State Finals, and I did so. Um, I particularly like doing this when it's a year that I'm not working the state finals. I worked them back in 19, and when uh, you work the finals here in Michigan, you are um, ineligible to work the semifinals slash finals for three seasons. So I'm, I was in the last year of that, so I'm hoping maybe I get another shot at them again next year because they're a lot of fun to work. And it was particularly intriguing this year because we had uh, a few teams from the Grand Rapids, Michigan area um, playing in the finals. We usually have some, but more than usual, and we actually had two teams that were playing against each other. 
in the Division II finals. And also, I had uh, four or five umpires that I know that were working the final, so I'd like to watch them, and two in particular that were working their first finals um, in their careers, uh, Chris Calkins and Kirk Vanderlaan. So I was very happy for them because it's a lot of fun to do. You get to work four-man. You work a couple semifinal games either on Thursday or Friday, and then you come back on Saturday and work one of the finals. So um, they both did great jobs. Um, it always seems like there's a guy or two here and there that struggle a bit with four-man. I, I know that they take a lot of time uh, the night that you get down there going over a big four-game, a four-man pregame. And it seems like there's always a few guys that just kind of go cowboy or something and do their own thing. Um, so I definitely noticed a few things that were, um, I don't know, what's the right word, troubling to me. Like, uh, you know, the simple rotations. You know, first base umpire goes uh, out and we've got the plate umpire not coming up to cover first base for him and, you know, get that playback and, and the touch and all that stuff. We have um, the second base umpire going out with nobody on base and the plate umpire just you know anchored to the dirt around the plate and not moving the third and first base umpire kind of going but not maybe doing what he should be doing and getting that guy moving those kind of things those rotations that we should should do one of the things they do and and the guys that run our nhsaa are top-notch you know college and performer pro umpires that know what they're doing but they try to simplify things and have um, our umpires go out on every fly ball, which I understand the reasoning behind that, and they're, they're going to keep with that. So I, I get it, but I think that uh, like when I work a quarterfinal and, and we pregame stuff, I think, it's, I think it hurts a little bit more the guys that aren't familiar with four-man when they go out on everything because they don't think. You've got to try to think, you know, you should go out on every ball that is even reasonably close to something you should go out on. If you, you know, it's always fine if you go out and maybe you shouldn't have and everybody rotates. It's worse if you don't go out and uh, then, you know, the ball is, you know, hitting the wall or guys trying to make a diving catch and, and nobody went out on it. So that's really what they're afraid of, which I completely understand. But I think that it takes the thinking, the read, reading the, the fly balls, the pause, read, react kind of things out of it. And I think that you get guys um, not moving the way that they should be moving sometimes. It's a little, I, I guess it's a, you know, you know, chicken or the egg kind of thing. Uh, it's hard to, to tell. And, I, and uh, I don't run the MHSAA and, you know, I never will. Uh, so I, I do understand and I really respect the guys that, um, that run it and why they do what they do and, and I can um, go with that you know but I think that you know it's maybe something that should be uh, rethought a little bit maybe at times you know particularly uh, per crew I guess because you, you get assigned a four-man crew and you're going to work all three of your games there uh, with those same guys so you can kind of get a, a feel for each other and, and strengths and weaknesses and, and how you react to different things um, so I think some crews are probably better able to do a pause, read, react, and go out when they need to go out um, than others. Um, that seems to be the case. 
um, nonetheless, um, there were a few situations where um, some of the positioning of umpires definitely uh, contributed to things. Uh, for example, we had a situation where umpires were not setting up very well uh, for uh, steal plays at second base, you know, these second base umpires. We had some umpires um, almost in the direct line of the hitter uh, sitting up, setting up in like a, a, a regular C kind of position. Um, obviously, um, there are some guys that, you know, if, if you want to, you can set up in deep C. Um, most guys, of course, do set up in deep B when they're working uh, four-man uh, for second base. Um, guys that were too close uh, on the grass so that um, they did not give themselves a good angle uh, on the steal plays. Also not adjusting when there was just a runner on second or second and third or bases loaded. Um, those are things that certainly should be thought through um, before you work that position. And uh, certainly some of the umpires seem to um, to just kind of do their own thing out there. I guess they're making their own four-man mechanics up. I know that that can be frustrating for the people that run the tournament. They do what they can. The guys got there, and, and they have to let them officiate the game. Um, and you're not going to go out there in the middle of the game and tell them this is what, this is what you got to do or something. That's not the way they really work it because um, that can be more detrimental than helpful for sure. But um, it definitely uh, affected uh, potential calls on a couple of plays. I mean, I think the teams that ended up winning, they, they won fair and square, but um, not always the best, the best look for sure. We also had a situation where we had a, um, a catch-no-catch situation that uh, was not uh, signaled very clearly. Uh, we have a batter runner going to second base, another runner heading back to... Um, Second base, you know, they didn't know if it was caught or not. Then we end up with two runners on a base. And then the second base umpires not, you know, clearly signaling who is safe and who is out like you should be in that situation and knowing that rule. Um, that, was, um, that was a bit of a, uh, a circus kind of play that wasn't so good as well. Um, anyway, I guess the, the bottom line is, if you get the opportunity to work three or four man, and a lot of times here it's four man, you really got to study uh, the mechanics that you're working. Uh, get a hold of those things if you don't have that um, literature available to you. Talk to people that have worked it. Have very good pregames um, with your crew. And uh, make sure that you uh, try to alleviate any potential problems that you could have out there. Um, stuff that you can definitely take care of before you get out on the field, all right? And I felt like there was a few guys that didn't really do that. They just kind of were winging it, and that's not the way we want to do things. Um, I mean, it's an honor to be able to work those kind of games, and so you definitely um, want to put yourself in the best position to make the calls that you can, especially when it's something that you're not as familiar with and you don't work as much. It's not as automated for you. So you've got to uh, do whatever you can to make things as automated as possible until you get used to the situation. So that is my suggestion for those things, um, if you get those opportunities. Um, and obviously, it's, it's tough to work those situations because, you know, we don't get a lot of practice working three or four man uh, leading into those, those postseason opportunities that some of us get from time to time. 
So um, it's always good to be studying some of those things ahead of time. If you're watching a major league game, obviously they do a few things differently, but they do a lot of things in, in a similar way. Notice how they're doing things. It's harder to tell on television as it is in person, but you can definitely tell a few things. Um, if you get those opportunities, make sure you're watching those guys and studying how they do things so that when the time comes, uh, you can be ready to step up and not make um, some kind of silly mistakes. There it is. Another episode of the Hammer and Umpire podcast comes to a conclusion. As always, I thank you for listening and thank you for getting to the end of this podcast. I know that sometimes it's a bit of a struggle, and this one a little bit longer than the last couple of podcasts. Uh, I'll be traveling for a little while, and when I get back, um, fall ball will be starting up, and uh, I'll be working a few games here and there and, and get out another podcast sometime in August, I hope. Um, until that time, I hope that uh, you are continuing to work some games and study mechanics and study your rules. And if you have any questions or comments based on some things that I have talked about in the podcast, or for that matter, just something that pops up in uh, situations that you have in games or, or dealing with, uh, with other umpires, or you're, you're studying things and you're wondering about something and wanted to know my opinion, I'd be happy to uh, cover those things on the next podcast. You can reach me through the Anchor app uh, and leave a, a voice message, uh, 60 seconds or less. You can certainly um, email me, spinalfusion06 at yahoo.com. You can reach me via Facebook or Twitter. I'm on there, my personal stuff, as well as the show Facebook page. Whatever works for you. Um, there'll be new things coming out as far as some changes for um high school and NCAA baseball in the coming months and uh, I'll, I'll continue to cover those as well and I'm always looking for uh, particular topics that might interest our listeners out there so feel free to to let me know what you would like me to cover on the show I know there's a few things that some people have liked in the past that I haven't done recently like quizzes I'm going to be adding some of those in I've done umpire spotlights I haven't done any of those recently, and uh, I'll try to reincorporate some of those in future episodes as well. Until then, keep calling strikes.